0: You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future. But until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Today we will be reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. All is vanity. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the turmoil at which he toils under the sun? Generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north. Round and round goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What is being is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has been already, in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. The vanity of wisdom. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and is striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. My heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Now I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is the word of the Lord for our church,
1: and it is given for our good. Well, thank you so much, Darcy. Let's pray before we reflect on this passage. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do ask as we come to your word and your holy scriptures, That your Holy Spirit would direct and guide our minds. That your Spirit might speak the truth to us. And that we might leave here knowing you have communicated to us this day. Speak to us the words we need to hear. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if anyone else remembers the movie The Hurt Locker. It won, uh, I believe, six Academy Awards, was nominated for nine. It's a, an extremely intense movie about a bomb diffusion unit in Iraq. Um, the It's a U.S. unit, army unit that is tasked to defuse these bombs, especially these improvised explosives all over the road. And the movie is filled with constant scenes of tension. You know, when you see someone on the phone, you don't know if they're actually on the phone or if they're going to set off a bomb. As you're watching the movie, your heart beats quite fast in almost every scene. I don't know if you remember the movie at all or any of the details. It's fine if you don't. But you may remember that at the end of the movie, there is something of a twist. The main character, Sergeant William James, comes back from his tour of duty in Iraq. He's saved several lives with his skills and his bravery in defusing bombs, but he's also seen some lives come to an end. He's not the same man he was before he left. And as the movie comes to an end, there's a scene of him walking around a grocery store, something like Loblaw's. And in a movie where your heart is beating most of the time, you're on the edge of your seat. Here is an almost two-minute scene of him winding through the aisles, first of the frozen foods. Then he brushes into his wife who says, could you grab cereal? And he goes to the cereal aisle. And the cereal aisle is perfectly ordered. Every cereal box right on the edge of the shelf, logos facing out. There's that sterile fluorescent light coming down. And he sits there for almost a minute, in this incredibly intense movie, observing the cereal aisle. The scene cuts, later he's at home, and he informs his wife that he is going to sign up again to do another tour in Iraq, and he re-ups for another year. The scene's so powerful as he's in the grocery store, because you realize, how can a man who's seen what he's seen, and been through what he's been through, take in the cereal aisle the same ever again. When his eyes have seen what he's experienced have put him in a situation in which life is just not the same as it once was, and he can't handle the sterile, clean cereal aisle knowing what is going on elsewhere in the world. Well, as I stated, we're starting a sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes, and I am so looking forward to it. I am really convinced the Spirit wants us to study this book, especially as we come out of this time of lockdown. It's, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's made a huge impact on my spiritual life and played a big role in why I even considered becoming a pastor in the first place, because the book is raw. It's honest. It starts, we we are told, with a narrator who tells us that these are the words of of what our translation calls the preacher, the Hebrew word kohelet, which is translated into Greek, the Ecclesiastes, uh, the convener, the teacher, the preacher. These are the words we read later that the preacher was the son of David in verse 1, and in verse 12, he was the king over Jerusalem. Many assume that this is Solomon, the great king of Jerusalem, the son of David, who is famous in the biblical narrative for uh, God giving him the request and desire of his heart that he grow in wisdom. God gives him a wish. He uses the wish to grow in wisdom, and God grants him wisdom uh, beyond what any other human being had. Certainly what we read throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomonic lessons, long sermons that seem to have been uh, given from Solomon or maybe passed down through some sort of Solomonic tradition. But this book of Ecclesiastes is so important because it will engage some of life's toughest questions, the meaning of life, the unfairness of fate, the inevitability of death, death's cruelty, and stripping humanity of any dignity, distinctives, or achievements. This book is going to look at all of those questions, and far from giving some sort of cliche Christian answer, it's going to teach us wisdom, a deep, deep wisdom. You see, the preacher in this book, whoever he or she may be, uh, the preacher, sometimes I might call uh, him Solomon, has done many, many tours of duty. He's seen many, many horrendous, horrendous, and horrible things. And he will not put up with serial aisle answers in the face of life's cruelty and difficulties. He doesn't want to live in the fluorescent lights in the perfectly placed boxes. He doesn't want to give Sunday school answers. So for those who are sick of cliches, maybe who feel beaten up by life, this is a powerful book. I'm convinced it's going to change your life if you'll read it slowly and give some thought to it. And this first, ser- first sermon in this series, I want to ask what the preacher discovered. Then I want to ask how he discovered it. And finally, I want to ask what are we to do with what the preacher has discovered? So first, what is it, what did the preacher discover? And what he discovered is given almost in the form of a thesis in verse two. He says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, before we can make any sense of this book, we have to understand what this word vanity means. We don't use the word vain or vanity very often. We were more inclined to use the word vain, and we hear vain when we think of vanity. This word obviously didn't come to us in English, it came to us in Hebrew, and it's this Hebrew word Habel, which If you uh, have uh, certain translations of the Bible in front of you, you'll see a footnote and it will tell you that to, to translate this word literally or woodenly, you would get the idea of a mist or a vapor or a breath. And in many ways, I just wish the translations would have translated this word as vapor, because this is what the preacher has discovered, that life has a vaporous nature to it. The preacher's point is that life under the sun is comparable to a puff of smoke, like a warm breath on a winter's morning. You can see it. You know what it looks like. You see it moving, but you can't grasp it. You can't manage it. You can't hurt it. You can't control it. You can't find the key to unlock it. Life defies your attempts to comprehend it. And just when you think you've got a hold of what life's all about, when you think you've got it figured out, it slips right through each one of your fingers. I don't think the the preacher wants us to see that life is vain or even meaningless. I think that'd be an even worse translation. I think the preacher wants us to see that life has this vaporous nature to it, this vaporous character to it. The preacher continues in verse three. What does a man or a woman gain by all the toil at which he or she toils under the sun? What what profit do we have with all of our days of work? The preacher is saying this to you and to me as we crack open this book and study this ancient wisdom. I've been where you've been, he said. I've attained what you want to attain. There have been no one like me in terms of wisdom and productivity and wealth. And I'm telling you, you are not going to find what you think you need. You will never get it. You will never be truly and deeply satisfied with things on this earth. This is what the preacher has discovered, that there's a certain unfathomable, inexhaustible nature to life, that life's pursuits drive us further and further and further into a circle where we realize after many years that all we've been doing is chasing our tail. The great Canadian actor Jim Carrey once said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they dream of so they can see that it's not the answer. I feel like the preacher would hear Jim Carrey say that and say, amen, you know, preach it, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, exactly. But this is the foundation of all we are going to learn from this book, that there's a certain weary nature to life. There's a certain frustration baked into our experience of life. This is what the preacher has discovered, what the Rolling Stones sang about so many years ago. I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try. This is what the preacher has discovered. Life under the sun has an enigmatic nature. It's frustrating. It's like catching the wind. But now let's ask, how did the preacher discover this this deep truth? And the preacher is also a poet. He's giving to us a poem that kind of explains the, the vaporous nature of life, a reflection on so many things. He begins verses four through seven by reflecting on nature, especially uh, the creation all around us as, as we observe it as human beings. He says, a generation comes, a generation goes, but the sun still rises tomorrow. The wind still travels around the earth. The streams flow into the sea, flow into the sea, flow into the sea, and they never fill up the sea. The preacher saying, Though we feel superior to the sun, the wind, the rivers, ultimately we have very little control over them. All the human advancements we've made, especially in the form of technology, all the great things we've learned, have done very little to help us in the face of forest fires, floods, and earthquakes. Even if you're hearing this and you think, well, my goodness, if humanity would just take climate control seriously, climate change seriously, get off fossil fuels, then we could uh, you know, slow down these uh, cataclysmic sort of weather events that have, are coming as a result of the earth changing its climate. To you, I would simply say, go read about the moon wobble. How are we going to fix the fact that the moon might go through a wobble phase, which will greatly change life here on earth? As we observe the creation around us, we realize that one day we will rise no more. And on that day, as we are buried in our grave, we can rest assured in our grave that the sun will still come up that day. Verses eight through the 11, the poem continues. And I think that the preacher is trying to reflect on the nature of our work. You remember, he he has already said, what do we gain from all the toil with which we toil under the sun? Then in the poem, he says this, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. Eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is ear filled with hearing. What what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. He goes on. Is there a thing of which it is said? See, this is new. It's already been in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. What is the preacher saying? He's saying, you and I get up. We're going to get up tomorrow, we're going to work so hard, 50, 60 hours some weeks, all for what? Yes, there's innovation, but what do we ultimately gain? What is our breakthroughs in our research provided for us? Just a little leverage over death. If we're lucky, our great-grandchildren may know our name, but even that is highly unlikely. The New York Times ran a piece a couple years back by a journalist named uh, Tim Kreider while he was still there. It was called The Busyness Trap. And he argues in this article that busyness is not actually a necessity of our new time on our our new uh, sort of economy and our new life. Busyness is not inevitable. It's a choice. He writes this, I fear for most of us, busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life can't possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you're so busy, if you're completely booked in in demand every hour of every day. He goes on to say, I can't help but wonder whether all this histrionic exhaustion isn't a way of covering up the fact that most of what we do doesn't matter. The preacher discovered this long ago, what Tim Kreider is writing about all of our work, all of our busyness. Yes, it's important. Yes, it does uh, provide for our family, does provide for us food. But ultimately, it just reminds us that life is a puff of smoke. There will be a pile of dishes waiting for you as soon as you get through one. There's more laundry to be done. The farms will have, the fields will have to be plowed again. There will be more emails to be sent. A puff of smoke, a vapor. The preacher goes on. He says, Not only do we know by looking at nature, or our creation, and also by looking at our work, but also in verses 12 through 18, he says, Even human wisdom shows us our limitations. The preacher says, I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all. And even this, he argues, is striving after the wind. Now, it's likely this book was written by Solomon or passed on from Solomon one of the wisest human, the wisest human being to ever live, according to the Bible. And he's saying wisdom gives us no leverage. Wisdom does not teach us all these life hacks as to how to have a meaningful, joy-filled life insulated from pain. You see, this book is all about wisdom. The preacher wants us to have wisdom, but what he wants us to understand is the wisdom that he is going to give, the wisdom that we need will not give us what we crave, what we think we want. It will only open our eyes more and more to see the frustrating nature of life. Wisdom does not give us a sneak peek into the cosmic plans. It does not allow us to peer beyond the veil that separates God's realm from our realm. Wisdom doesn't let us walk up the control tower of the world watching over how God conducts things. Wisdom allows, does not give us one ounce of control. The more we grow in wisdom, the more we will begin to see the absurdity of life. This is what the preacher has discovered. There's a vaporous nature to life. Where has he discovered it? Everywhere he looks in nature, in his work, and even in his wisdom, he sees this vaporous nature of life. But finally, let's ask, what are we to learn and do with what the preacher is passing on to us? And my guess is... Christian or not, there's something deep inside of you as you hear this book read that you think, is this even Christian? Is this allowed to be read in church? And there's something even deeper than that in which you fear that what the preacher is talking about may indeed be true. And we wonder, should we hope that it's not true? And what are we to do in the face of life having this frustrating nature to it, life having this uh, feeling of a puff of smoke, What are we to do if there is no way to quote-unquote win, to hack life under the sun? What are our options? Well, we could try to deny this is true. We could try to assume that Solomon is wrong, that the preacher is wrong. We could assume that maybe we're the exception to the rule that we will indeed find some satisfaction. We will find the key to life. That once we make partner or get that promotion we want, once we get that vacation we need, once our retirement account hits that level, then we will be truly content. Then we will be truly satisfied and happy. But I think you and I both know that there's not a mountain you climb, that the second you reach the peak of that mountain, you don't see more peaks in the horizon. There's not a ladder that you can climb that you get to the top rung, all defined at the beginning of another ladder waiting for you. What do we truly gain for all the toil with which we toil on this earth? So what are our other options? Well, we could do what many in our world do, which is just numb ourselves of these deep and existential questions. Try not to answer them. Woody Allen was once asked, what do you believe in? And he said he believed in the power of distraction. And I think many in our culture, many of our neighbors, this is what their hope is in. Distract away these deeper existential questions. Drink them away. Smoke them away. Take pills so that they don't bother you. Whatever it takes. Uh, make sure you have a nice house. Make sure you have the nicest rentals. Make sure you have the perfect yard. Make sure you know, that, you, that you're busy with things around the house. Then you won't have to think about those hard questions about why suffering is unfair. Why there's not an equal distribution of pain in this world. But as you do that, you are going to know, the day, you grow, the day you mow your grass and put the mower back in, the grass is already growing back up again. The dishes are soon to be waiting for you. You're going to do this again and again and again until you die, and if that does not make you somewhat depressed, I don't know if you're looking at life honestly. Maybe another way of dealing with the preacher's arguments is to say, this guy doesn't even sound Christian. Maybe this is unchristian wisdom. We're told to seek the opposite. And so you live by platitudes. God works all things for the good, a a true statement from the Bible. And you assume that somehow, though, you have insight. You can figure that out. And you live by these platitudes. And when you're with someone who's dealing with infertility or someone whose marriage is going through a very deep time or someone who can't get dark thoughts out of your head, you just have to keep repeating these platitudes. God will work all things for the good, even though they more and more make you disconnected from reality around you. Or maybe you take the opposite approach, and in the face of life's vaporous nature, you, you just turn to cynicism. You say, I can't be disappointed if I have no expectations, and you become deeply cynical. These are the options in front of us when we realize, vapor, vapor, all is vapor. What does a man or woman gain from all the toil with which he or she toils under the sun? We all know these preachers' words to be true, but everywhere in film, I could have come up with thousands of quotes, thousands of scenes in which what the preacher wants us to get, we're seeing played out in film. Maybe it's been seen most clearly in the HBO series True Detective uh, with Matthew O'Conaughey. It won many awards. He plays this um, intense and gifted but twisted detective named Rusty Cole. And in one scene, he's in the car with his partner, and he says this, I'd consider myself actually a realist. But in philosophical terms, I am what's called a pessimist, pessimist. I think the human condition is a tragic misstep in evolution. We've become too aware. Nature created an aspect of nature separate from itself. We are creatures that should not exist by natural law. We are things that labor under the illusion of having a self, the secretion of sensory experiences and feelings, programmed with total assurance that we are each somebody when in fact, everybody's a nobody. He goes on, I think the honorable thing for our species to do is to deny our programming, stop reproducing, walk hand in hand into extinction. One last midnight brother and sisters opting out of a raw deal. Now, why did that show receive so many awards? It's a grotesque show. I'm not necessarily recommending it to you, but McConaughey's character, McConaughey, I believe, a Catholic man, his character deeply gets the preacher's point, and he makes it so beautifully in every every line in his, of his character. The more closely you look at life, the more you realize it's absurd. The more you try to live a life of meaning, the more you realize it is a frustrating experience. It's chasing the wind. But this book of Ecclesiastes is in the Bible. Maybe, just maybe, because God wants you to know that all of these disappointments are actually His grace towards you. Seeing the vaporous nature of life, seeing the despair that could set in is not when you see that life has a vaporous nature, is not an invitation to despair, but it's an invitation to something deeper, deeper. Futility, frustration on the earth, yes, these things will be seen. But when you see them, maybe, just maybe, these are an invitation to a deeper life. Frustration is inevitable, yes. But there is a God who rules over this world who is never frustrated. He rules and sustains over this world in and through us, sometimes despite us. He is in control. It is his job to sit at the control panel. And we are just beginning to understand the difference between our minds and what we can comprehend and his mind and what he knows. But knowing there is a God in control should banish all of our anxiety about the future because we know the future is in God's hands. It should destroy our guilt about the past because we know we can find forgiveness in the work this God has done to give to us forgiveness. But it also should cure boredom in the present, because we know even in the most mundane parts of our day, we are living before the face of a truly holy and different God. I believe the preacher wants us to discover what he has discovered, but he wants us to discover it quicker than him. We don't need to journey through all the pain he has experienced. Life is like a vapor and there is no philosophy. There is no religion, Christianity included that can change that. But there is one who is in control and he has used his control Not to yell from heaven, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, frustration, frustration, all is frustration. No, he has come down from his realm, his high throne, and he's instructed and commanded his son, his eternal son, to take on dilapidated flesh and to enter into the futility of this world. To make sure that his divine life intersects with the vaporous course of human life and in human flesh and in a world of futility. Jesus lived a life of constant obedience and trust. He trusted God at every juncture, all the way up to his death on the cross when it, I'm sure, felt even more futile. And God raised him from the dead. And in his resurrection, a new world, a new future was previewed, was birthed. And we began to see that God is going to peel back this futility. It won't last forever. And though life still carries with it, this vaporous nature. Though life is still frustrating, we, we live by faith in fear of the God who made us. We have a living awareness, a, a constant awareness of the transcendence, the otherness, the difference of the God who oversees our world. He is so much greater than we are. And we begin to realize how little we actually know. We begin to realize how weak we actually are. And it's in knowing our limitations, learning to surrender our attempts at control to the God that we live and move and have our being, learning to surrender our attempts of control to the, to the Jesus of Nazareth who died on the cross for our sins and was resurrected to destroy our futility as we surrender our attempts of control to him and trust that he is in control. It's only then that we're going to find true joy in a world of chasing the wind. Let's pray.
0: Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at christchurchtoronto.ca or email us at info at christchurchtoronto.ca.